Good morning, everyone. As we continue through uh, 1 Samuel, we'll be looking today at 1 Samuel chapter 27 through 29. I'm only going to read part of the reading that we'll cover longer, so just starting in 27 and reading partway through 28. But let's now hear God's word as it's read to us this morning. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, and he and the six hundred men who were with him, to Achish, son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel, and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites, for these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as Shur to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. When Achish asked, where have you made a raid today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of the Jerahmeelites, or against the Negev of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring the news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking, he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel, therefore he shall always be my servant. In those days the the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel, And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and camped at Shenem. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams, or by Urim, or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her, inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went he and the two men with him. And they came to the woman by night. And he said, Divine for me a spirit and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, As the Lord lives, No punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? He said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, 
Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Do not be afraid. What, what do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a god coming up out of the earth. He said to her, what, what is his appearance? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. And now, O God, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. What is a witch, a ghost, and a deceptive military campaign have to do with the kingdom of God? That sounds kind of like a beginning of a bad joke, a ghost, a witch, and a deceptive military warrior walk into a bar. No, that's not it. The, the answer is, our text today is the answer. This is one of the stranger texts of scripture, maybe, maybe the top 10 in the top 10 stranger texts. And Larry has given this to me today as we look at this <laughs> passage. It's in the word of God. What does it have to tell us about God's kingdom and God's plan? We've been looking at Samuel, and one of the big themes in Samuel is God's transition of his people from a kind of period of darkness to a period of light, to giving forth his promises, showing more of himself and his mercy, his plan, his grace, his kingdom. And it's at work here in this passage today. And as you can see from the outline there that looks as closely as I can make it to Larry's outlines, uh, is a structure of the passage today, which is, it's all about desperation. We've seen this already in the passages before us. David is certainly living in desperate times. Saul is becoming increasingly desperate. And today this passage sort of combines David's desperation and Saul's desperation and puts them together for what's going to happen here at the kind of finale of 1 Samuel. We only have a few more chapters left in 1 Samuel, and this is leading us to sort of the climactic ending of 1 Samuel, God's transition of his people from one time to another. And this passage is really all about responding to difficult circumstances. I could ask at the beginning of this, how do you respond to difficult circumstances? What's your method? Where do you turn to? How do you respond? Well, this is a picture for us of how God brings about his salvation and his deliverance. Not only about sort of the the morality of the people in the story, but how God is going to bring about his plan. And so this passage today follows a kind of sandwich structure, very similar to the passage last week. 
Uh, you can see it there that begins with David's desperation, his circumstances that are quite dire. And then it actually leaves us on a kind of cliffhanger. You heard it there at the beginning of chapter 28. David is told to go out with the Philistines against Israel. We're kind of stopped right there. And then suddenly in the middle, we have Saul's desperation. And I didn't read it, but we're going to come back to chapter 29, the conclusion to what happens with David's desperate situation. But you can see kind of the structure, what's going on here. David and Saul contrasted with one another, but Saul kind of there stuck in the middle, in the medium, we might, we might say. Now, previously, we've been looking in 1 Samuel, um, how Saul has been continually attempting to kill David. David's refusing to get revenge, and Saul often repents, says he's sorry. You can kind of just hit this repeat button over and over again in 1 Samuel. Saul basically saying, I'm going to kill you, David. David not uh, responding to Saul, then Saul saying, sorry, and then repeat again. This happens a number of times. Well, apparently, this repeated cycle is getting rather old to David. It's very tiresome. Uh, it's very difficult to live through this, because immediately after our previous passage, where David has been spared uh, again, and Saul has repented or shown that he was wrong in this, David is still suspicious that Saul is going to attack him again, and probably with good cause. This has happened many times. Saul sort of says, sorry, uh, but then, you know, Baxi, I'm doing it again. And who could blame David? He is in a dire circumstance. But verse 1 of chapter 27 begins this way. David said in his heart, now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. Now, on the one hand, this is a kind of astounding statement because the Lord has delivered David time and time again from the hand of Saul. Uh, it's been an amazing moment after one a moment after another. But David seems to enter this time of despair. And I hope many of us can sympathize with this kind of thinking that it seems difficult even after a great victory, even after something God has done in your life. You can think sometimes it's just too good to be true. Can this really last in all of this? You know, David has been anointed king, and he's heard through the voice of other people that the Lord intends to do great things for him, but he doesn't have a direct promise from the Lord that, that he's going to sort of live through all of this, so he despairs. He looks into his own heart that often happens and says, this is, this is too much, and he is in despair. But even godly faith has ups and downs. Dealing with doubt is a part of the life of faith. It's a normal struggle for God's people. It's a normal struggle for me. I experience it from time to time, and you do often, I imagine, as well. Doubt and uncertainty sometimes just happen to us, it seems like, even after amazing moments of God's work in our lives. But the question is what to do with our doubts, and that's really the theme of this passage, because the same thing is going to happen to Saul a chapter later. David reasons, well, maybe it's just better that I escape to the land of the Philistines, verse 2, because maybe then Saul will finally give up on chasing him. Now, we might wonder about the appropriateness of this plan. The Philistines, we might ask, didn't David do this before, by the way? And yes, he did. When he did it before, he was all alone. He got there. Suddenly, after getting this plan, he becomes very afraid because the Philistines remember, this is the guy that killed lots of our Philistine warriors. He killed their champion. So you remember David pretends to go crazy, and they let him off. Well, David does it again. 
Uh, but things have changed a bit since then. For one, David now goes down with his whole merry band, and everybody, including their wives and their children, this is quite a large group. He had gone earlier just alone. In fact, this seems to be part of his reason in going. It's taken a toll, perhaps, on David and the families. And perhaps they can quiet down for just a moment of peace. Well, secondly, pretty much everybody knows about what's going on with King Saul in Israel, his mad pursuit of David. So David appears to be a kind of estranged defector, uh, an asylum seeker, a traitor to Israel. So Achish, who's a Philistine king, um, really has no way of knowing that David has remained loyal to Saul. It seems like David is just a defector from Israel, and why not receive this guy? It might even be advantageous of him to receive David on his side. And the first thing to point about all of this plan, point out, is that look at verse 4. It worked. It worked. When it was told to Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer pursued him. That does actually give us a bit of suspicion that Saul was going to pursue David regardless of his earlier statement of repentance. He's still mad about David, but here he gives up. But we have to ask the question, we don't have to spend a lot of time on this, was this right of David? Does this show signs of lack of trust? I think we can certainly say this is a crisis of faith for David, but I think we need to be careful about assigning blame as well. And one reason I say this is that this passage is going to follow a kind of pattern of a couple of other stories in the Bible. And in those stories, the, the kind of parallel events, the characters who do something similar to David aren't sinful, or at least we don't get any sense that they're doing something wrong. Now listen, you might remember in Genesis, God had promised the promised land to the patriarchs, they go there, they're in the land, but what happens? A famine happens. Several times this happens in Genesis. And they leave the promised land. They relocate to Egypt. This happens to Jacob and his family as well, and under the care of Joseph. Uh, God had promised the land to them, but there's not really a hint that it was wrong from their leave. There's a famine in the land, and they needed to get out for a time. Well, we'll unpack this pattern a bit more in our story today, but let me first of all point something to notice with this whole story in the book of Samuel, and that's that the Philistines are actually related to the Egyptians. We might forget this, but it's kind of there early in our Bible, and it's an important part, at least in Jewish reading of it. Uh, and all the way back in Genesis 10, you might remember the table of nations, all the nations of the world that descend from uh, Noah and his sons. Well, the Philistines are said to descend from the race of the Egyptians. It's there in 10.14, if you look at it later. But this is oftentimes then in the Old Testament, when you see the Philistines, you can kind of have in the back of your head, ah, they're like the Egyptians. So they're being enslaved again. God's having to do a kind of exodus again. Well, David's exile to Philistia is recalling that exile to Egypt, or that fleeing to Egypt. It's also recalling another exile, and that's the exile of the ark, all the way back the beginning of 1 Samuel. Remember, the ark goes into exile, in a sense, for the people in 1 Samuel. So it's not David's fault, of course, that Saul is pursuing him. And like the ark earlier, uh, David is the anointed one going into exile on behalf of the people. Egypt, or exile, is kind of a place of testing in the Bible. And so it is here for God's anointed one as well. 
There's one more possible reason that Achish kind of might welcome uh, David into his land, but I want to kind of reveal that to you later, but think on that as well, why Achish might do this. And we see David act very deferential toward Achish. He's humble. He's unassuming. He calls himself a servant to Achish. And Achish even gives David a city, a town of his own, Ziklag. Uh, very similar, by the way, to when uh, the Israelites go down to Egypt. And the Egyptian pharaoh, actually early on at least, is very receptive of him. He says, here, have the land of Goshen for you and your family. Well, there's another reason there might be a clue in this story that David is still acting in faith, even in this crisis, even in this doubt and desperation. Ziklag, we're told, is the town that he's given, and it's a town that was allotted to the tribe of Judah in the conquest of the land when Joshua was bringing about the conquest. But it was actually never captured. If you can read this back in the beginning of Judges as well, Judah refuses to continue the conquest and they have parts of their own land that are never actually captured and brought into the tribe. Well, David seems to be doing something good. He's getting the tribe that was, or getting the city, the land that was given to Judah, but never actually claimed. And the narrator even kind of inserts his voice in the story, and he says, Therefore, Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. Verse 6. So even while in exile, even in David's desperation, he's in a sense gaining the inheritance that God had promised to his people. And that's actually what we see in the next few verses as well. David basically uses Ziklag as a kind of base of covert operations, launching attacks into unconquered areas of the land around places that Israel had never fully won. There's a contrast here, a contrast with King Saul. We actually heard it there in Samuel, speaking about why Saul had the kingdom taken from him. He didn't go after the Amalekites, that God had a a wrath, a kind of ongoing war against the Amalekites, and Saul didn't pursue it. But David, not yet even fully on the throne, he's doing the work of the king. He's an outcast to Israel, but he's actually still fighting Israel's battles. Now, some readers have kind of criticized David here, saying, yeah, but what about all of this that David seems to lie? Uh, What's going on here with this deception? When Achish would ask, where have you made a raid today? Uh, David says, "Uh, against the Negev of Judah, against the Negev of the Jeremelites, or against the Negev of the Canaanites. These aren't the people groups that he's actually fighting that's mentioned in verse 8. Uh, We might not care as much about the latter two groups, but what about the Negev of Judah? It sounds like David's attacking Judah. Makes it seem like he's fighting against Judah. But notice carefully the sort of shrewdness in this language. It's very deliberately ambiguous. It has a lot of ambiguity in this. Uh, David is speaking about attacking the Negev of an area. Negev just means the desert. He doesn't actually name a people that he's acting, he's, he names the region. You might say equivalent if someone, this is a crazy sort of statement, but where were you? Oh, I was out attacking the hills of Georgia. Okay, well, it would assume most of us would say, well, you're probably attacking Georgians, Americans, because that's who lives in the hills of Georgia. But David is sort of being as, uh, as, as shrewd as possible in how he's saying this because there were certain people groups together in this. Uh, It's assumed what David is saying. Uh, Achish already seems to assume that David is a traitor to his people, and this is just playing off of it. But David is 
is walking a careful line here. He's appearing to be loyal to Achish, but all the while he's actually demonstrating a kind of greater loyalty to Israel. He's fighting Israel's battles. He's loyal ultimately to God himself. It's God's war that he, in a sense, he's continuing. But again, some have criticized David because he is putting the people to death, but he's bringing back the spoils of war, the booty to Achish. Seems like a tribute to Achish. Is this going against the Mosaic law? We kind of remember, didn't Saul get in trouble for something like this? Well, the text explains that it's in part so that no one would talk, spill the secret that David is out there actually conquering Israel's enemies. But in sparing the animals, David isn't actually necessarily breaking the law. I kind of was looking a lot about this. Deuteronomy 20 kind of gives the rules of warfare once Israel is in the land, and it names specific people groups uh, that Israel is to give the ban to. We've talked about this earlier, this kind of all-out holy war in which nothing is to survive in any kind of way. And none of them except the Amalekites— uh, or sorry, the Malachites are not even listed on this. It doesn't require it against these, except when God himself says it. Uh, and this is something he did tell Saul specifically. You are to do this in this circumstance. So it seems a parallel here that David isn't doing this for his own gain or glory. He's not doing this for his own personal benefit. Um, he is acting as Israel's official king while Israel's king is not defending his people. Again, David's walking in a credibly fine line. It's a pretty risky move, but it seems almost to be working. That is, until it doesn't, and the plan nearly backfires. Look at the start of chapter 28. Achish is so happy with all that David is doing. He summons him. He says, hey, we're going to war against King Saul, probably thinking David's ready for the opportunity to get some vengeance. And he even says, you'll be my bodyguard. You'll be my lead guy out there in all of this. It's interesting that the very position that Achish gives to David is the one that he had been given by Saul, but Saul had sort of uh, not trusted him and cast him out from it. David's situation is pretty tough. It's the kind of picture I've thought about being in the world but not being of the world. We sometimes have to live among those who are ungodly, those who expect us to do ungodly things, um, and that's not wrong to live in the world. Jesus says we are not to be taken out of the world, but we're not to live of the world. We have to resist the temptation to become like them. So David's living among the Philistines, but now has an opportunity that he has to resist the temptation of being a Philistine. And David's response to Achish might be the shrewdest thing he says yet. Look at verse 28. He says, very well. You can kind of see David kind of going, all right, <laughs> very well. You shall know what your servant can do. Hmm. Hmm. This is deliberately ambiguous, uh, ambiguous again. David might not mean what Achish thinks it means. Uh, David isn't, we seem, about to fight his own people. He has continually said that he will not fight or lay a hand on the Lord's anointed, as he promised. But it puts David in a tight spot. And that's where the story kind of leaves us on this cliffhanger, just as it breaks to the other major character. Now we see Saul's desperation. Look at verse 3. We're sort of seeing the story from the other side. Achish is mustering David to lead his army. Saul's on the other side and quickly reminded that there's no more Samuel around. And we're given this note as background. Saul had gotten rid of all of the mediums and necromancers. These are probably not words 
You may not be too familiar with medium. It means a spirit, someone who's going to conjure up something. A necromancer literally just means someone who's bringing from the dead, uh, bringing about someone from the dead to speak to them, uh, and that's what is going on here. Some of your translations might say spiritists, shamans even was an older one, enchanters. We're talking about those who communicate with the demonic or with the dead. And Saul had rightly expelled these people. It's a reminder that Saul, it seemed like, had been faithful for a time. We might say Saul had actually waged holy war. He had been doing the ban against the right kinds of people. He'd put them out of the land, expelled them. But this is now exactly the kind of person that Saul is going to seek out. And his reason for doing so stated there in verses 6, 4 through 6, the Philistines are at his doorstep. Maybe he even knows that David is with them. Uh, remember how paranoid Saul is about David's conspiracy to take over his throne? Perhaps he's reoccurring this again. But most of all, Saul inquires of the Lord, all by the normal means of that time, dreams, Urum and Thummim, prophets, and God is silent. Beloved, this is actually a great moment, just for a second, as a reminder of the ways of the Lord. Uh, he is not obligated to answer those who come at him wanting their own selfish things, hoping he's going to be a fortune teller for him, a kind of vending machine for your life's problems. Saul had already killed most of the priests, so it doesn't help that one of the groups of people he could have consulted are no longer around for that guidance. He had already failed to listen to Samuel the prophet, and now Samuel is dead. Uh, Saul himself had been among the prophets, but said the spirit had left him. So God isn't obligated to respond when he has all the other open ways in front of you. And you think, no, 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 I want something different. I want something direct after you've just responded, not faithfully with the ways that are open before you. So God is silent. If we come to God's word hoping that we, uh, just what we want to hear, uh, we should not be surprised when it doesn't seem like God's voice is in it. When we directly disobey parts of Scripture and say we want these parts and not these others, we shouldn't gain any help from Scripture and from guidance to do what we want to anyway. One of the most repeated themes of this chapter is fear. Look at how many times we're told that Saul is anxious, he's fear, he's trembling. In fact, it's kind of interesting, at least in Hebrew, it sort of intensifies each time we go from anxious to afraid, to very afraid, to the final one, terrified. This isn't a sincere seeking of the Lord. This is not a trustful seeking of the Lord, a right kind of fear of the Lord. Well, having heard from nothing of these legitimate uh, modes of guidance, means of guidance, Saul then turns to the illegitimate. Ironically, even that is difficult. He has to kind of <laughs> Uh, spend some time getting the, to do this because he had previously been faithful and expelled these illegitimate means from the land. But besides fear, the other major uh, theme in this chapter is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Let's look at each of these. So again, Saul had refused to listen to Samuel in life. So now he says, I'm going to start listening to him when he's dead. <laughs> now I'll listen to him. Maybe Samuel will help me now that he's dead. Saul had banished the spiritists but now says, find me one, telling his servants to go find him one so that he can get guidance. That's another irony in this passage is all about robes. We've heard a number of things about robes in Samuel so far, the book of Samuel. Saul takes off his royal robe to go in 
sort of peasant disguise, it would seem, so that he's not recognized from being a king. But how is Samuel recognized when somehow he is brought up from the dead? Well, it's he's wearing his official robe, apparently still in death. Well, Saul should have been recognized by his robe, but now he's taken it off. The last time that Samuel's robe had been mentioned, Saul had torn it as a sign that his kingdom would be taken away from him. All this irony here. Well, to get the help of the witch, who is terrified, by the way, of what might happen to her, uh, she even says, haven't you heard what the king did? (laughs) Yeah, I've heard what the king did, who's directly in front of her. Saul does what he swears by the name of the Lord. As Yahweh lives, you will not die. Do you hear this? He swears by God's name to do something that God has directly said not to do. I swear by God to do something that God has said should not happen, that he will not obey the Lord's word. Someone else is going to swear in the next chapter by the name of the Lord. Keep that in mind. Well, Samuel is none too pleased by Saul. It's sort of funny. I can't spend much time what's going on here. He's like, why have you disturbed me? And he reminds him of the words he already spoke to Saul. Again, the irony, I already told you all of this. Saul hasn't been listening, so why bring him out to ask him again? But Samuel does give Saul a new prophecy, or at least a more specific prophecy. He says, moreover, by the way, additionally to all what I've said here, tomorrow you and your sons will die. You'll join me here. Saul comes in fear to the spirit of Samuel. He's hoping to be comforted by his fear. Samuel will somehow strangely give him a comforting word, and it says the Saul's response is now he's terrified. He's filled with fear. Trying to hear from the Lord in sinful ways only worsens your problem. The rest of this chapter is a bit surprising in how much time it actually spends on the ongoing interaction of Saul with this witch, with this medium. We're told that Saul has been fasting. Again, an irony here, trying to do something obedient to do something disobedient. The woman tries to comfort Saul and even says these words, I have listened, I have obeyed to what you have said. Now you listen and obey what I have to say. And what does she say? Take bread and eat so that you may be strengthened. There's a strange emphasis here on the woman's desire for Saul to eat, and then Saul actually eating here. A lot of words are taken up with this. Notice the details of the meal. It involves unleavened bread. How interesting. Eaten in the middle of the night in her house. Does this remind you of anything? It's a deliberate echo of Israel's Passover night, the great night in which God promises deliverance and it's sealed in a meal but here in a kind of strangely inverted way debased instead of Saul being saved remember what happened on the Passover night firstborn sons what does Samuel say to Saul you and your sons your firstborn are going to die at the hands of the Philistines the ones who are from the race of the Egyptians the Egyptians are going to kill your firstborn sons David has gone down to Egypt, we might say. He's given a land like Goshen. But David's going to be rescued. I'm spilling the beans here. Saul has become like the the Egyptians, though, a kind of pharaoh himself, an oppressor to God's people. So he's going to die like one of them. The Lord is bringing about an exodus through this event. He's toppling down one power, and he's raising up another that goes all the way back to that prayer at the very beginning of this book, which should be in our minds always when Hannah says that you're going to take down the haughty, and you're going to raise up the humble. Saul comes with two men in disguise, we're told, uh, and this woman is declaring a report about what has been done. 
uh, in the land. Think about that story, that echo here, much as Rahab declared the the news of the victories of Israel when two men disguised come in, uh, the fear that was occasioned to the two spies who come to her in disguise. And like the spies that come to Rahab, Saul declares, no harm is going to come to you. But then the story again reverses. The disguised visitors now side with the one who's under the ban rather than the person under the ban siding with God's people. Saul has already been kind of associated with the king of Jericho. If you remember the story about coming down, David's coming down out of the wall from Michal, already in the narrative. Now he kind of seals it that he is acting like the Canaanites, and he is going to be destroyed like them. David is kind of replaying the movement of God's people, Israel, in a good way. But Saul is descending, you might say, into the grave of Egypt. Before we move on, there's even one more kind of Old Testament, deep Old Testament echo in this passage. So much going on. This witch is from Endor. No, that's not the forest moon where the Ewoks are. This is, thank you for the laughs. This is a spring, a well-watered place, we're told. Endor is that the word means a well-watered spring. That reminds you of something, a well-watered garden. All the way back to the beginning of the Bible, the very first temptation, scene, and sin. See, Saul plays kind of the role, you might say, of several things here. The role of the serpent and deceiving the woman and committing a sin that she doesn't necessarily want to do at first. She says, haven't you heard about this? I've, already, I've been put out of business. The woman tells Saul that the king has punished with death. Don't you know the punishment for this sin is death? And what does Saul say? You will not surely die. You will not surely die. Then Samuel appeals to Saul Uh, Samuel appears as a god arising up out of the earth and questions him, what is this you have done? You will surely die as a result. You will return to the dust from which you have came. You'll join me here in the ground. You'll be driven forth from the garden of the kingdom. And in fact, one like an angel of God, he doesn't say this, but you can think ahead, one like an angel of God is going to be put to guard the garden. Just glance ahead, you might, for a second, where Achish calls David an angel of God. Saul's a serpent. Saul's a fallen Adam. He has listened to the voice of the woman, literally, and ate the food that she gave him. And so God's going to raise up a new Adam. The battle that we're about to see is the battle at Aphek. It's the same place where Eli's sons were killed and Eli himself dies. So what happened to the house of Eli is going to happen to the house of Saul. God is taking down the haughty and he's raising up the humble. Let's move ahead quickly to resolve this cliffhanger from David, but I've already told you that it's an Exodus story. God rescues his people, his beloved. David remains extremely shrewd in all of this, kind of walking that fine line, but it's ultimately the providence of God that gets him out of this. No doubt it seems like David is actually prepared to turn on the Philistines in the heat of battle. You might think, what is David thinking is going to happen? Well, this is actually something that has happened in Samuel already. Chapter 14, verse 21 is when a group of Israelites, it seemed like they were hanging out with the Philistines, Philistines turn on the Philistines in battle. David even says with this shrewd ambiguity again that he is going to fight, listen to this quote, fight against the enemies of my Lord and my King. Hmm. Verse 8. That's exactly the phrase that David has been using to describe Saul all throughout Samuel. It seems that the Philistine lords, uh, the leaders of the soldiers are right to suspect, I don't think David's actually going to end up on our side. And David doesn't have to do this. He doesn't even have to lift 
a hand against either side. David, God gets David out of the fight, just as the Lord had done in keeping David from fighting Nabal and after all these other stories. And all the while, the king of the Philistines is declaring David's innocence. No, this is a great guy. In fact, he says, I cannot find a charge against him. Hmm. Interesting language. He does this three times, and he does it, hear this, with an oath in verse 6. As Yahweh himself lives, he declares David's innocency. Uh, Saul does this with utter hypocrisy. We don't know about Achish's heart, but this is interesting, isn't it? Might be a deeper clue to why David has been able to live among the Philistines. It might be that some have actually come to recognize the God of Israel is the living God, the God of living. It's interesting here that uh, in later passages in the Old Testament, every time that the Philistines are condemned for their wickedness, all five cities of Philistia are mentioned except one, Gath. Every time, Gath is missing. When we see this in, later in 2 Samuel and in other prophet, uh, prophetic passages, it seems like the Gath, the Gittites actually, are the ones who follow David. We're told this in 2 Samuel that many Gittites followed David when he became king. Is David's example among here a good example, one of witness, living in the world but not of the world, and so winning some to the Lord it might be? David was in desperation but he has somehow kept the faith, and the Lord delivers him. It's ultimately about the Lord's promise, though, that David is rescued. It's not about the morality of David and Saul. It's about the Lord's faithfulness to do what he has said. You might not have noticed it, but chapters 28 and 29 continually mentioned the time of day in these events. We're told that Saul goes down to the witch at night. We're told that it was dark. It ends by saying literally that Saul went away into the night. He lives in the night. But again, for David, it keeps mentioning the day. Achish tells David to rise early at dawn, at the sun's rising. The whole passage ends with David leaving the Philistine army early in the morning. See, David has kind of gone through a dark night of the soul. It's a phrase that we've used in our Christian life and faith. But more importantly, God is bringing Israel from night into day. God's putting aside an old Adam. He's delivering his new Adam, the one after his own heart. David's story is a story of patient suffering, about waiting on God, about being tested by him. But ultimately, yes, this points us to great David's greater son. For John begins with, his own did not receive him, yet to all who did, he gave the right to become children of God. The father tested his son with patient endurance, through suffering, and he won us the victory, walking the line, you might say, outwitting his enemies, being shrewd in all that he did, throwing through the dark of death into the night and through the, into the day of resurrection. We now live on that other day. It's Christ, in Christ, that we can learn the lessons for ourselves in this passage. The ultimate day has been won to Christ, but it is the case that you often experience dark times. Times of desperation. We might even say that there are times of desperation. And this is how God brings his people through them. Uh, the life of a Christian can often feel like David's dilemmas uh, between maybe you might say people who don't accept us and outsiders who want us to betray our own. How do we walk this line? We can be reminded about our call to live in the world, but not of it. Ultimately, in loyalty to God, that you put your trust in him you put your life in his hands, and you trust that God will bring you through it. Christ calls his disciples, you might remember 
to be said to be as crafty as serpents, but as innocent as doves. That word crafty is actually the word that described the serpent all the way back in Genesis 3. He says, be as crafty as that, but be as innocent as doves. Beloved, may we be found to be innocent by the world around us, but as shrewd and as wise in Christ with good sense. Christian wit, you might say, to walk the line, to trust Christ in all of this. You shouldn't miss that the warning at the heart of this passage either. Uh, sin really does lead to madness. David may have despaired, but fall, Saul fell headlong into this despair. Turn to death, turn to falsehood, turn to madness. Don't turn from God's word, beloved. Heed God's word. Don't turn to anything else. Look to Christ. Look to your king, and so be saved. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our heavenly Father, uh, we turn to you in our desperation, in the difficulties that rise up against us. We give you thanks that you have already given us your Son, our Savior, our King. And we praise you, O God, that he has brought us from death to life, from darkness into light. So help us, we pray, by your Spirit, that we might live in this world blameless and with true wisdom, so that others, too, might call on your name in faith. For this we ask through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.